I'd like to do is take you to Georgia, in fact, uh, focusing on the policy. It's a tuberculosis policy. They are still in the process of redefining. Um, and it will give us plenty of angles to look at, at release evaluation and how you actually do it. But I'll focus on the number of challenges, not all of it, uh, of course. But okay, if things uh, are not clear, if you want to raise other things, as I said, just uh, ask me. So I don't think I should repeat much this kind of mantras. I think the starting point for our um, use of release in Georgia was that there is this promise in release evaluation that you can do it in a very participatory way. That you can start from a program theory that you develop together with the stakeholders. In this case with policymakers. And the idea was actually to use the whole release cycle to at the same time in fact develop a research program on this policy. Kind of find out how we could uh, check and test effectiveness costs and the processes of implementation, but also actually informing the policy-making process by engaging policymakers in the whole exercise. And so this kind of a double promise is actually uh, what we started out with here in, um, in this project. Um, seven principles or eight or nine, there's a number of lists out there. I, I'm, again, I'm not going to go very deep in that. I, by now you are into this, I think. Um, just to say that at some point here, we'll, we'll have some questions. So the configuration an analysis part is to make sure that you link up your policy implementation, the outcomes, this black box of mechanisms and context, and perhaps people in it, and that all of that makes sense. And that you do the analysis, not in segmentations or by, by segments, but really um, kind of tie it up at the end. Um, we use in Antwerp this kind of a cycle or kind of a diagram to, to structure things a bit, to make our students see um, how we go about designing a study, but also for funding um, proposals, that kind of stuff. So the whole thing starts with research questions or your research objectives, your evaluation questions if you want. You know by now the program tier is the starting point, it's the end point, but also the starting point of any realist cycle. Study design, data collection, data analysis will be in fact decided upon by your actual program theory. The program theory which is of course responding to these kind of questions. And then at the end of the whole uh, empirical cycle you try to summarize, synthesize, kind of pull your uh, CMOs together into the program theory again. You refine that and then you know the cycle can go on as, as long as your funding actually takes. Uh, and quite often that's not very long of course. At some point then we'll have recommendations for policymakers or for any kind of commissioner of the evaluation. So that's basically the steps and we'll focus a lot now here on the uh, program theory phase for a large extent, uh, to a large extent because this and that has been done as well but we're not yet in this phase. We're, we had huge delays um, which we'll come back to at, at the end of the presentation. So. The starting point is this program theory, which is perhaps easily understood as kind of the assumptions, the ideas that underlie a policy. And that should explain why that policy would ex be expected to lead to particular outcomes for a target population. That's basically um, the, the idea here. And one of, so release evaluation is not the only actually evaluation stream using this kind of principles, theory-based evaluation, theory of change largely starts from the same principles. The idea is that if you develop that program theory from the beginning with people involved in the program or in the intervention, there's a higher chance that you'll get a common understanding of what's happening because you'll identify critical issues. And you might also actually push people to, to develop or better actually the parts they did not develop. And we'll see that actually happening in Georgia. Um, if you go into the causal pathways from the very start, it allows for a better evaluation design.
And so if you develop this program theory from the beginning with the policymakers, but also with the research team, and in this case we had economists, um, there are public health people, health systems people, um, some psychologists, a number of different disciplines basically, if you want them to kind of get your, your thing, it helps to have something to work on and that's in this case uh, the causal pathways, which then actually leads to a better design of the evaluation because you will see that also you can actually start mapping out on your program theory the kind of data points you need and the methods you will actually um, use to collect the data. Um, by now, I should, this should be no news tonight. Right? If you, the assumption somehow is that we all have ideas about why things work. We don't necessarily make that explicit. Definitely not when you are a policy developer, a program designer. There's a lot of hidden assumptions uh, quite often. But it's good to, to understand that because um, it, it steers to a large extent actually what will be implemented and why. Okay. Now, there are a number of ways to, to come to that initial program theory. Fault theories, which are the program theories held by the designers, the people, beneficiaries, the actors involved. Of course, there's a lot of existing knowledge. Yeah? I think probably everything we kind of look at in medicine or in public health has been done somewhere. There's lots of research that's very relevant for our kind of policy implementation problems that have been developed in disciplines like public administration, uh, psychology, economics. So it helps to, to find out how you can get into that knowledge. And then if, if nothing would exist, exist, there's always a possibility to start with uh, exploratory research. So that's kind of basically three categories of, of ways, let's say, that help you to, to come to your initial uh, program theory. Now, Georgia on a bad day, actually it was quite sunny at that stage, but, but cloudy. Uh, this is Batumi. Um, I don't know if you know where Georgia lies. It's not the American Georgia, of course. <laughs> We're into ex-USSR. Um, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. It's in the middle of the Caucasus Mountains. It's a highly political area. Um, you can see this large chunk of the world, which is uh, the Soviet, well, ex-Soviet Union, Russia. They are still quite involved uh, at the northern border. It's a relatively big country, but it has only 6 million people. Um, it's kind of sparsely populated um, and highly mountainous. Now, the problem with TB is that it is for, it's better now, and because if you look at the incidence maps, uh, the dark green areas are the worst off. That's basically the southern parts uh, of Africa, and that has to a large extent to do with HIV-AIDS, co-infections, but also quite still some in Southeast Asia. The ex-USSR republics had quite high levels. Um, when the USSR broke up, lots of the systems collapsed. Um, Georgia kind of picked up, but they're still in the high range here. So they're kind of this um, light greenish kind of thing, but as we'll see at the upper limit of that zone. So 92 people out of 100,000 will get TB every year. The problem is not only that, but it's that actually the success rates are not very good. And there's a huge variation geographically in the country. So in the big cities where the clinics are good, you'll find uh, for drug sensitive rates, uh, for drug sensitive TB patients, rather, 100% success rates, but only less than half uh, in a number of other places. There's quite some multi-drug resistance tuberculosis as well, which is quite problematic, of course, but these people will not get cured. And this resistance is also occurring in people never treated. So in that sense, the multi-drug resistance and, and, the ex, uh, and the extreme resistance cases is really what concerns policymakers. And they had two explanations when they looked into the policy in around 2015, 2016. So one was adherence of patients to the treatment is not good. 
And as you know, it's a long treatment. We'll come back uh, to that in a second. But also a lot of people actually dropped out of the treatment. So once started, they actually had a lot of side effects or they didn't feel, feel very, very well uh, cared for and they drop out. And that was initial analysis. Um, it has to do to a large extent with a huge wave of privatization that happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91. Now it took a bit of time for them to get their Rose Revolution when Chevanadze and a lot of the old apparatchiks were kicked out. And in that period, from in fact already here, there was a very wild privatization going on. So one of the stories is that um, they actually gave for a symbolic uh, ruble almost huge hospital complexes in the middle of Tbilisi uh, as a, in, a, in a kind of a lease, a five-year lease to private companies who would then were, uh, they were just supposed to run the services for five years uh, for this symbolic one ruble and then they could do with the thing whatever they wanted. They just pulled them down and they built shopping malls. And so it's a bit the spirit of this uh, wild capitalism that's, that really is uh, quite, quite strong in Georgia. So it led to what we call purchase provider split, a complete separation of the state's functions uh, and the provision of healthcare. It was completely privatized. And in fact, for TB, it's a private sector that actually does the cure, the care, but also preventive activities. So there's very little um, left at the central level. There's a national tuberculosis program. They do the policy making. They're supposed to do some uh, <coughs> supervision supervision and, and guidance of uh, the private practice as well. The private sector is also very heterogeneous. There's uh, small companies running a number of clinics in a few cities. There are mega companies running uh, kind of um, chains all over the country. There are private practitioners still. There are nurses operating small clinics. So it's a very kind of diverse picture. But it's not really a priority for providers because there's not much money in it, basically. And as we'll see, patients will need to be observed every day, in fact, when taking the pills, or every two to three days, so it's a huge workload for, in fact, very little money. Now, government foresaw that already, of course, and they had a TB service agreement, which forced the private sector to offer private, I mean, um, TB program activities within private companies. But that agreement was supposed to end by 2018, and so policymakers said we need to, to kind of incentivize the private sector now to really take on and continue the treatments. But besides that, they also saw quite some problems between this primary health care or first care, uh, first level of care, in fact, and the um, TB services in the big city. So they had a number of problems there. Just to give you an idea, um, that was uh, the, the DOT, so directly observed treatment regimen for TB in Georgia, which is kind of an international protocol. Uh, it takes, and that's a bit strange, um, people had still to be hospitalized for six weeks and, and uh, four months initially, in both cases, drug-sensitive and drug-resistant TB patients. But the treatment takes six months. And so in some cases, they went to a system whereby the patient would come twice a week to the clinic, take the drugs under supervision, swallow, and actually almost check, and then take some pills home for the next two days, come back to the clinic to be seen actually taking the tablets. It's a very from a public health perspective, I can see the point, but from a, from a human perspective, this kind of direct observed treatments, I, think I can't understand it. I, that we ever did that. I mean, that you force people to come and show that they swallow a tablet. It's crazy. Yeah? Anyway, um, so you can imagine for patients, it's not the nicest kind of uh, experience, but for private providers, actually, they couldn't care less almost. That's not to say that there are not good clinics uh, in, in Georgia, because the rates are not all that bad, but um, it's a problem. So what they said is, okay, if we need to 
make sure now that the private providers properly take care of their TB patients and kind of motivate them to come every two to three days and make sure that they sit out the whole treatment, we need to incentivize them. It's a market system, it's a, it's a purely private uh, for-profit system, so what you do, you just dangle them a carrot and okay, you hope you'll have some sticks to beat them if they don't, but there are not many sticks in Georgia. It's the carrot that's really the, the policy um, option taken. So that kind of a decision was taken in around 2015. Policymakers said, we need to do something about the situation, we are going to uh, incentivize them. And they asked actually a local um, research center, the Croatia International Foundation in Tbilisi, to set up a program to help them actually to develop the policy and at the same time to evaluate it. And that was part of a grant they got from the Global Fund to actually um, roll out a, a three-year pilot project uh, testing these incentives. So that was the whole start of the project. And it got funded at some point by uh, the Health Systems Research Initiative of the MRC. So what we then did was, in fact, pull together a whole consortium, health economists, health systems people, some TB guys. Um, the idea was to have a three-pronged approach in terms of evaluation, impact assessment, then a cost analysis, and a process evaluation, or a policy implementation assessment, but then um, based on the release approach. Now that's kind of common, that's what you see in a lot of situations, of course, you have kind of uh, any kind of trial combined with process evaluations, um, whatever. What we did here was to set out to kind of bring all these strands together from the very beginning and based on the program theory. So here the setup is to try from the very beginning actually to come together with policymakers, but also the researchers and to have one program theory that would help us set up the three other elements of the research, the actual data collection, let's say, and to have then one common framework, not only to guide the process, but also to help us with the analysis at the end. So that, um, and at the same time, because we would engage with the policymakers, the whole uh, monitoring system, as well as implementation, would be easier to follow up. That was kind of the promise. So, program tier here deals with intended policy, we'll have a combination of designs, we'll have an integrated data collection tool, basically, that, that maps out all kinds of studies that we need, or sub-studies, to answer the big questions, a much more integrated data analysis, a more parsimonious analysis, a more parsimonious data collection also, and that should help us then to uh, inform the scaling up phase. Now, been, we had actually been doing that more or less in another project, before this one, FemHealth, which uh, focused on the exemption of maternal care fees, so exemption of fees for maternal health services in uh, West Africa, which was a huge policy thing uh, like five, ten years ago. Here in this project, FemHealth, we did not do it from the very start. So what we did was kind of halfway, try to figure out how um, neon neonatal maternal mortality is kind of influenced by biological and complications, but also by a number of health system factors that you then can start mapping out. And the color things, I'm not going to go in detail, but the color things are basically sub-studies, work packages that were focusing on documenting particular elements of the chain. And this was a study done in four countries, um, so it helped us to, to have kind of an overall strategy uh, and some standardization of tools, but also to make sure that there would not be too much overlap, not too many gaps, in fact, and a much more integrated analysis. Now, that was more or less um, what we achieved in FemHealth. But here, we did not set out with the whole thing. We didn't start from a program theory. So, as we said already, four theories, literature reviews, exploratory research, 
that could be used to, to formulate your initial program theory here. We actually did uh, three, uh, the three things on top. Um, and in a kind of um, yeah, a wave system, if you want, we started with formulating the initial program theory on the basis of policy documents. Of course, there had been quite some things written on the policy in Georgia as well, but also internationally. Literature reviews on um, policy implementation, on TB programs, on the problems of the Caucasus, and then interviews with the program managers. So that was the very starting, the kind of basic uh, starting point. We took this initial program theory then to a stakeholder, a kind of um, yeah, a concept mapping workshop, if you want, or a stakeholder workshop, where we brought together a lot of people. Then that led to the initial program tier number one. There will be a whole chain. Um, additional document review, again discussion with policymakers because of political context that changed, and then a new kind of program theory that was taken to the second workshop. Uh, and we'll see there was a slight difference in focus there. We ended up with the third one, and then that one actually was taken up by both researchers and led to a research strategy, if you want, and with the policymakers to new TB policy. So we did this process over a period of four months almost, um, two workshops in summertime somehow, a few months here and a few months on that side. Okay, what is of course important if you want to engage stakeholders is to find the right ones. And what's quite often not happening is um, providers and, and patients. In this case we did not have patients, but we had representatives of patient organizations. But there was a quite good mobilization of, of about 45 participants, in fact, of all these levels here. So policymakers, the program managers, of course, from uh, the national system, but also the funders, uh, researchers, and then nurses, doctors, actually from all regions of Georgia. Because, okay, it's one thing easy, in fact, uh, to get the, the people working in the big cities. Um, you can actually get them and know them, but we had, in fact, quite a number of uh, providers from far away and more, much more rural areas. And that, as we'll see, actually changed quite, uh, quite strongly the dynamics of the group, but also led to quite some new insights. Now, if you want to start your program theory, you have this kind of very diverse public. It helps to have a starting point somehow. And so here, um, this is, so uh, Anna Vazal is the health economist involved of one of them. She had uh, been working on uh, TB programs and um, cost-effectiveness analysis. They had been working on a, on a kind of a frame. What we did is kind of simply take out the central part of that framework, which is nothing more than setting out the different steps uh, people would go through from onset of symptoms to being treated. That's kind of, we call that in Antwerp, an operation analysis uh, kind of tool. It's PO's model of TB implementation program evaluation, if you want. Um, it's nothing new there, but it helped a lot for this public that's a public that's really uh, geared towards TB and program management, doctors and nurses, to have something quite tangible and relatively simple. So we did not use the full-blown thing here. Uh, we just told them, look, in the first workshop, try to figure out in this kind of a chain, where are the big problems? Where are the bottlenecks? Why are people dropping out? So it was used as an, in this first workshop, actually, as a way to, anal to analyze the problem by bringing the different stakeholders together. But also in the second phase of that same workshop to make them think about solutions and then prioritize solutions because okay, policy is about, of course, priorities. And a lot of discussions and interactive um, small group meetings to try to come to not a consensus but to actually find rival theories. So again, the problem with, with 
program-driven or theory-driven evaluation methods is that you start out with a program theory and that there might be a tendency to confirm that, as we always do. We have uh, ideas, the human mind is kind of set up to, to confirm what we think. To avoid that kind of tunnel vision, you really need to continuously uh, push people to look for alternative explanations. So that actually happens because we had facilitators, of course, for each of the groups. So what it actually did was um, discover, not really, of course, because we knew that, I mean, the very, very starting point, why would you simply incentivize private providers and hope that that would change the situation in Georgia? Of course, we know there's a whole systemic set of factors that you need to tackle at the same time for TB patients actually to be comfortable, to accept the care and to actually sit out the whole thing. You know that it is not simply providers actually needing an incentive to change their attitudes. But the policymakers were not much convinced of much else. And so they were actually involved in this workshop. And for them, these kind of contextual factors, health system factors, service-related factors, patient-related factors were quite, quite shocking to some extent. So it led not only to identifying these constraints much better, but also to considering, in fact, bro a broader package of, uh, of interventions to be in the policy. Now, again, no need to read this. Um, so this is one way to summarize the findings of that first workshop. You remember vaguely this central pathway of the patient. We kind of expanded it a bit. Uh, it went up to the organizational settings, this, the kind of um, facility level issues, management strategy, then providers. On this side, again, geographical accessibility, acceptability, financial accessibility, so service-related factor that you could factor in. And then that chain was also developed further with a number of, uh, of other things. Don't worry about that. It helped us to somehow keep track of the discussions. First point, first step taken, the workshops. So we're at this level here now, more or less. There's also a bit of a narrative uh, program theory version, if you want. And that was actually then discussed with, again, policymakers. So a bit of a strange thing there. One of the people of the Croatia Foundation was a member of parliament was the head of the uh, medical commission in, or the health commission in Parliament, was closely involved with policymakers, had a lot of inside information. Actually, it allowed, it allowed for a lot of discussions at high level through this kind of double position, researcher, policy, politician, actually. Um, but these discussions actually were, were quite important because they led to a number of changes in, in the policy uh, design, basically. And then we did some additional document review because what, okay, I'll come back to that later, actually. Let's start with this, um, engagements with the policymakers. First thing here, the number of these people changed. And in the process of this uh, program since what 2017, I think we've had three Minister of Health, two different Secretary Generals, a number of different heads of departments as well. So there's quite a, a, a fast turnover of uh, politicians and policymakers there that complicates matters. They come with different ideas, they need to be briefed, they need to kind of see what's happening. We need to understand what they want, actually. Um, so that, that was an, an important phase here. And what it actually did, did was, where initially the, the whole policy was about incentives to individual providers, it was a much more comprehensive package developed. And again, I could have told you that that's what we need from the very start. But of course, it doesn't work that way. It's not us going to tell them what they need. People need to discover what they uh, actually need to do and, and the engagement, the kind of ownership that is a result of this, this kind of a process, I think, was, was, was an important uh, outcome. Um, 
what we then did in terms of having this discussion with policymakers and, and the previous results was to go a bit further into, into policy implementation and especially um, kind of theories and mechanisms um, which were not identified by the participants. So when you engage with these stakeholders, they are not realists. They're not looking necessarily for mechanisms. They might not even have a clue about what a mechanism is. For them, they look at bottlenecks and problems. They see very kind of anecdotal evidence. You need to bring them to come to, to substantiate their claims. And that's the process of, um, in the workshops, actually making them argue why they think this is a problem and why that could be a solution. But they don't go necessarily into the deep, deep analysis and definitely not to the level of mechanism. So at that stage, we pulled in the literature reviews um, and some other things we've, we had done in the past on adherence. And then a number of tiers, of course, exist, quite some. We had taken this information motivation behavioral skills model, which is quite used in HIV uh, research, where it is used to explain adherence to treatments, and self-determination theory, which is a motivation theory, uh, quite well developed since the 1970s, and um, also applied to motivation of patients in taking drugs. So it was a quite useful theory that helps us to, to model things. So we had... Um, kind of simple models, let's say, to, to think through again why people, in this case, um, women with children who needed uh, drugs, would be initiated on the team or not, maintain and keep uh, taking the drugs. And, okay, this was a very simple um, starting point of that, that previous study. So, you can combine, of course, insights from the stakeholders' workshops with existing evidence, with the knowledge that is already out there, with evaluations from programs and previous studies, and kind of accumulate gradually the, the knowledge and specify it, see whether this explains the situation in Georgia or not. So it's a bit about the portability of this kind of um, middle-range theory elements, uh, if you want. We also try to find out a way to summarize these um, program tiers in causal loop diagrams. We're not going to, don't worry, because <laughs> I see a number of people. No, no, I mean, it's a terrible thing, this thing. Um, this is the simple one, let's say. There are a number of layers in this thing. So causal loop diagrams allow you graphically to map out relationships between different elements, if you want, of your causal chain. Um, it's, of course, much more advanced than a simple drawing program. You can actually use this to model the whole thing and to run particular changes in the thing. But um, we are not into modeling outcomes or predicting policy changes. Um, this was used for, for us to kind of in represent in much more detailed way the feedback loops. And uh, at some point, we are stuck here. Eh? I mean, it was not for, for a number of reasons, but also because of the, the sheer kind of complicatedness of this thing, actually. Anyway. Just to say that uh, the discussions, and that's always the thing, of course, with modeling, eh? you, you can believe in modeling or you can be very skeptical, but developed models actually allows you to, again, put your hypotheses and assumptions on the table and to discuss them and to confront people or at least each other's uh, assumptions. So it helped us to get a much better understanding of the policy as a research group. Um, and because it made us our different kind of assumptions very... So in our group, there were people working on PBF, on performance-based financing, from a health economics perspective, really believing in it. Others quite skeptical. There were people working on tuberculosis. They had lots of knowledge on, on the TB pathways. Then some epidemiologists from Georgia, some sociologists, some health systems. Now, if you want to kind of have a detailed map, you need to bring all of that together somehow, or not, eh? and have uh, rival explanations. Okay. But what it did, at least for us, is again 
see much better which kind of data collection tools we would need to document not the whole map here, but the specific pathways we would be interested in. Um, and I'll come back to that at the end a bit. Second workshop. So we had a bit of a program now. There was a policy decision taken. Um, we wanted to bring it back now to, again, the same group of stakeholders to see how far they were actually agreeing with that or not. Because again now, the politicians or the policymakers had taken back the initiative and they had developed a new package. Now we wanted to see in how far that would make sense uh, if discussed with the actual stakeholders. Here we had far less participants, about uh, half of the group did not come this time, we had about 27. But well, <coughs> we had the same mix, so the same kind of uh, representation of different groups. So here the idea was, okay, if this is the, the policy package, what will it achieve? So we, you could call that the action model from the policy to the beneficiaries, to the expected effects, potential side effects. And in the second step then we wanted them to think about, okay, but do you think it will work for which reason, why, and which kind of conditions? So action model, causal model is something that's not really used much in realist, that comes from program, uh, from theory-driven evaluation, but it basically does the same thing. So the idea was, we, where are we in the whole process? We have, at some point, the policymakers now have an idea that the package should be much larger than they initially thought. But they, and the researcher, of course, kind of steer that to some extent, and then this politician researcher guy also. So at the end, to make, to make sure that, that what they would decide in Tbilisi would make sense for people in the faraway regions, we said, okay, let's use this opportunity and the dynamics of engaging with the stakeholders a second time to kind of test back, in fact, uh, the hypothesis underlying the new policy, which the policymakers, of course, did not make very much explicit. They don't think in terms of program theories. Even if they're involved in these workshops, at some point, they revert back to type. So, and that's quite normal, of course, it's not their business. So here we said, okay, let's do two things. Let's first, so the policy was presented, the packages and the way the politicians thought it would work. And then we said, okay, let's now go a bit deeper into that policy and ask the participants to think about the action model, which is the link between the policy, how it will play out, the intermediate effects, and then the ultimate effects, which is basically health status or adherence to treatment. Um, but also not forget about potential side effects, because politicians only, only see positive effects of things, of course. But we know that a lot of these, um, what is basically systemic interventions, will have some negative effects as well. Okay. Second step was, once you have done that kind of action model thinking, explain why you think it will work or why not. To again kind of find out would there be not rival theories or rival explanations or better solutions to, to the problem. So it was kind of a test uh, again of um, the hypothesis underlying the, the policy. And that actually did not lead to much results. So we're not sure, very, I mean, we didn't go very deep into the analysis. Is it? because the people were tired at some point, because this was another second workshop, or because they actually did not see problems. But okay, um, that's where it was. So as a, a result of this, there were very few modifications of the program theory. The one we had presented to them actually was more or less maintained. But the package of the policy was again refined a bit. So where it was initially in the very first step, just incentives to individual providers, after the first workshop, we went to this package. So we'll, you will not pay incentives to individual doctors, nurses, managers, but to the whole team. 
So one of the critiques was that a lot of people are involved in TB care. You cannot incentivize individuals. You'll get gaming, you'll get lots of problems. There will be a lack of team spirit and collaboration. We know, in fact, that this incentivizing of individual providers leads to quite some problems if you don't control it. So here it was said, let's then have the whole team paid in terms of their performance as a team. And at the same time, make sure that the team can function better. So there was, it was found that in a lot of these private clinics, the task distribution, the way people co uh, coordinated their work was not optimal between laboratory and the clinicians, between the reception and the patients, there were quite some gaps. And then um, the other thing which was lacking was an integrated patient management tool, they call it a plan. You would call it a patient file probably, where you keep in fact the whole uh, records of the patient including the treatment plan and use that as a kind of integrated data management tool that would help the provider but also the facility to better manage care for patients. And something which might not have been super important but which was felt to be important was the side effects. So the hypothesis was of a lot of providers that because of the side effects a lot of people drop out. And of course TB drugs are not innocent, they cause quite some problems. So training for specialists to identify these side effects and to do something about it was deemed important. So that was before the second workshop. And the next kind of package did not change much. Um, they went into a bit of um, more details now in terms of TB case management and the bonus system also was fine-tuned. Okay, so we're not going to go into PBF, that's a, a whole three weeks course if you want, if not more. But the way you're going to make sure that the team actually gets the money and how you're going to decide how the cake is cut up is quite critical. Who is playing which role into the performance? How much are you going to, going to give to the receptionist? How much to the doctor? How much to the, I don't know, the driver who takes the samples to the region hospital? Each of these people plays a role in the whole systemic thing that you need, but how much do you need to pay them to motivate them to do better? So it's a quite a, a messy uh, intervention if you want. So we were more or less at the end of the second step here where some of the, but not so much of the policy package was again refined. Um, and well, some examples, eh, they said now we need, and, and that has changed again uh, in between because these are kind of dates from last year. Um, but they were now more kind of, kind of standard operating procedures, let's say, or guidelines developed for how an integrated care team should, should function uh, with a clear distribution of the roles, with some additional training, with guidelines, uh, with supervision tools developed for that. Okay, they wanted a patient-centered approach. Now that was a huge discussion. Uh, it means 25,000 things to, to different people, of course. Um, I was surprised. Yeah, okay, but that was an option. I mean, a problem still. And then, okay, as I said, uh, the bonus uh, payment system was also somehow changed. This is very much a technical discussion in uh, performance-based financing. So I kept out of that. What we also did now, because you remember vaguely this huge um, complex, uh, the, 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 the loop diagrams, that was too difficult to, to capture, to understand. We reduced it to the essential parts now. And so that's another problem we'll have with, with realists quite often. That is, how do you focus on your complex chain of causality? Where do you, can you capture everything? Then you have these CLD diagrams, and of course not. Uh, our human brain is relatively limited in what it can, can deal with. You need to somehow reduce it. And here, um, I'll explain that later also. Uh, we went into a much more kind of focused set of um, hypotheses or CMO conf configuration if you want. Um, but I'll, I'll come to that in a second.
And because it's about this basically, yeah? if you want to focus on this huge, um, let's say the chain from people at the political level identifying a problem to the health outcomes that basically depend on how patients with TB deal with their disease and how they feel about the disease, how they perceive it, how they link that to their community and local situation and then to the health system. Um, do you want to identify mechanisms and causal explanations at, at which level? And uh, we talk about that in terms of ladder of mechanisms in realist or the number of ways of conceptualizing that. You might imagine levels of mechanisms at micro level. So at the bottom, let's say, where it's about individuals, people, patients, why would they be motivated now under this policy to take their drugs? Why would providers actually be more, I don't know what, different in their uh, behavior towards patients to make sure that people would swallow the drugs? Why would managers of facilities actually go with this policy? Why would their supervisor from the TB program do that? Or why would politicians continue to push for funding? You can imagine, in fact, um, mechanisms happening at a number of different places. And of course, they all are linked somehow to one to the next. Eh? Um, this is another example of one of my PhD students now, where we look at how, again, that was the FemHealth example, a continuation of that. There's a particular policy at national level. It gets translated into a national program. It comes down to hospitals. Managers need to adopt it or not. They will actually have a number of options to, to go with the program or not, to capture it actually for their own benefits or perhaps to improve it. So these are kind of uh, street level bureaucracy notions here. But then it's not because managers decide to go with the program that actually the providers will, will do. So you can imagine in fact at each level of the system, a number of hoops and barriers or levels that actually need to be kind of uh, taken for the policy to work. And you cannot just focus probably on just the providers or the facility manager or a successful policy will need to take into account the whole, the whole system, of course. But okay, that's a, a discussion you can have at some point. So where do you want to focus your, um, your efforts? So our way of focusing on things was to say, let's focus back on the initial question, that is, why are patients not adhering to the policy? So how does the policy increase adherence? If there's an outcome of better or, or worse adherence, how do we explain that? by focusing at providers and different kinds of providers, different kinds of uh, private institutions and different logics they may have. Do the facility managers and then also the people at service level adopt it and implement it? In what kind of context do they do that? And what about patients, of course, because they are the people supposed to take the drugs and supposed to get better at the end. So that's how we try to kind of, um, to kind of focus the things now. Um, there's a slide missing here. I don't know what happened, or is it perhaps after this? No. One of the major problems we have, and that's not necessarily due to realists, is that, that it's kind of a natural experiment. This is a policy where you're kind of prospectively involved in the whole thing. You never know how it's going to end, and not even if it's going to continue in the first place. So one of the major delays we had was changes in the political system due to elections, program managers changing, politicians changing. Initially, in the first wave of change, nothing much happened in terms of the policy preference. They still went for PBF. But the second government came in and they said, well, let's, let's drop that idea. Let's go for primary health care and free care and a, and a kind of a different way of looking at things. And then the question was very much from a research perspective, okay, I would, uh, my, my position was, let's go with the flow. So if the policy changes, let's just adapt the policy question we have and see how that change actually happens and if that new policy will be implemented or not. But the kind of hardcore economists and the others said, no, 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 we have this program, we have our design, our trial is ready, let's just do it. 
And then you have a very strange situation whereby the Curacio team tries to convince the Global Fund to still get some money there, even if government is not fully in line with, and uh, it's a quite strange situation. Um, but okay, that explains a bit, also again, the delays. It's now, after, let's say, one year and three months of a kind of um, go-between phase, that we're back into really testing the tools now, starting the data collection piloting, and probably uh, implementing the pilot phase in, in a few months from now. And it might be that by that stage, again, the political favor will be uh, pro-PBF, but perhaps it will not. So it kind of asks, I mean, and that's with any kind of policy research, of course, to what extent do you need to steer your research in function of politicians and national priorities, or do you want to stick to your initial fixed design and the funders' commitment and whatever? I, yeah, that's a bit uh, dubious. Okay, so, yeah, and this was one of the clinics um, in Batumi, kind of swamping the office with five, six, uh, seven people actually, asking questions to two nurses. Uh, this was not the way we usually do research, of course. Um, this was during one of the kind of introduction visits. Are there questions? No, I... I'll thank you for uh, for oh, staying no. here. Absolutely. Absolutely.